Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. You're in the right place for all things regenerative living, ecological restoration, permaculture, and natural building. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. In this show, it's my job to interview leaders, innovators, and rebels on the cutting edge of their fields as we look for solutions to our generation's most urgent challenges and share these techniques and information so that you can join us in creating a healthy and abundant world for everyone. So let's get started. All right, welcome to the last interview in the reforestation and agroforestry series. Now we've covered many important aspects on this topic in 10 interviews over four months. And I've spoken to homesteaders regenerating cloud forests in tropical climates, tech companies with more than 20 tree planting initiatives around the world, agroforestry and orchard advocates and everything in between. And this last conversation is the icing on the cake. Now, if you've ever wondered how to restore a mature native forest in record time and on a modest budget, then this is the episode for you because today I'll be speaking with Shubendu Sharma, a former automotive engineer for Toyota who has planted both small and large native forests around the world through his company A-Forest, which specializes in making natural forests of native trees. Now in this interview, Shubendu talks about how he applied his engineering mindset to systematize accelerated native forest planting and create open source manuals that anyone can access and follow. He explains in detail how a dense mature forest can be planted, even in a desertified region, by taking care of soils, selecting the right species, and planting densely. Toward the end of this interview, you'll hear Shubendu and I talk about the possibility of the launch of a new Kickstarter campaign to create a video series on how to plant your own native forest in record time anywhere in the world. And I'm happy to announce that the Kickstarter is now live and open for donations. Now, if by the time you're done listening to this episode, you can see how much value there will be in making this information available in an easy to follow video format, then I highly encourage you to follow the link in the show notes for this episode and donate whatever you can to make this happen. Now, I've already put in my donation and I'm really excited to start planting in my own area of Spain. But no matter where in the world you live or work, reforestation could have a big impact on regenerating the health and biodiversity of your ecosystem. Now, I'll be putting more information on the campaign at the end of the interview, so be sure to stay tuned to the end. With that said, I'll hand things over now to Shubendu. Hey, Shubendu, thank you so much for making time to be with me here today. How are you doing? You're in India at the moment. Tell me what it's like over there. Hi, Oliver. Pleasure being on your podcast. I'm in India. Yes, I live in Bangalore in the south. It's nice and sunny here, not cold like in North India. But we have projects happening in south and in north, so I'm exposed to both the climates time to time. Yeah, I mean, I've been looking through some of your body of work and you've worked all over the world now with your reforestation projects. But before we get into some of the work that you've done, how about you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and what first inspired you and your interest in forestry? All right. So I, though I studied industrial engineering in college, which I always wanted to, it was purely out of passion. I really loved machines, really loved factories and how things are made. Uh, I ended up becoming an engineer uh, and Toyota was one of my dream companies to work for and I eventually ended up working at Toyota uh, one year after I finished my engineering and there while working at Toyota I was exposed to a scientist Dr. Akira Miyawaki who 
is an expert in afforestation. He is a Japanese scientist from Yokohama National University. He's a professor emeritus there. And with Dr. Miyawaki, Toyota made a small forest in 2009. And I was so fascinated just by looking at the pictures of his work in his first presentation that I uh, joined his team as a volunteer, learned the methodology. And just like any other Toyota engineer, I wrote uh, standard operating procedures, SOP, how to make a forest. Mm -hmm. Using that SOP, I made a forest on my own. And that's how I got interested in afforestation and started practicing it. So tell me about how you sort of implemented your first forest. It was in your backyard at your home, wasn't it? Yes. So the implementation of first forest happened under the supervision of Dr. Miyawaki in the factory where I was working. And one and a half years from then, like I used that one and a half years to see the growth of the forest, study a lot more and write all those manuals, which would help me make a forest all by myself. So the house forest was actually the second forest I became a part of, but it was the first forest which I made all by myself. That's why we made a lot of mistakes in making in planting that forest. But the, the, the base of that entire process was based on what I learned at Toyota when Dr. Miyawaki was making his first forest in India. All right, so let's talk a little bit about the Miyawaki method of growing trees and how it's different from the way a lot of organizations and companies go about trying to plant trees or reforest an area. So the basic theory on which Miyawaki method works is called the theory of potential natural vegetation, PNV. The theory says that if a piece of land is deprived from human intervention, naturally a forest will come back on it. The first grasses will come, then small shrubs, then trees, which are pioneers, pioneer species, softwood, fast growing trees. And then eventually trees, which are slow growing like oak, uh, they will start to appear and make a system which will keep on regenerating itself. That ecology won't change until probably the next ice age. This group of trees or group of species is called the climax forest species. So the first step we have to do is identify the potential natural vegetation of a particular place, segregate the climax forest species, and then plant a climax forest using the seedlings of seeds collected from another climax forest. So basically we are mimicking nature, but we are skipping the steps in which it will lead to climax forest finally, maybe after 200 years. So we are taking what would be the result of natural succession after 200 years and planting it on day one and creating a micro environment where the trees are at the same density at which they occur in the forest, like three to five seed, three to five plants per square meter. And that's incredibly dense compared to the way plantations happen or gardening happens. So this is another radical difference from uh, uh, conventional plantation that we plant super dense, so dense that you can't even walk into a Miyawaki forest. But that's exactly how the way a natural forest would be, so dense that you can't even walk into it because of the dense vegetation under the canopy of big trees. So 
by planting densely, by planting only climax forest species of potential natural vegetation, and by mimicking nature in a way that we make our soil as healthy and fertile as soil of a natural forest. It smells like a natural forest right on day one when we plant the forest. So we make sure that our, our soil is good at perforation of roots, perforation of water. Uh, it can retain the water, it can absorb it like a sponge. It's full of uh, microbial life in it and it facilitates microbial life. It facilitates spreading of fungi throughout the network of roots. And by doing all these things, sometimes we even reintroduce microbes directly into the soil. By doing all this, by creating this micro environment, which is forest-like, we are able to create a forest, a self-sustaining forest in just two to three years, which keeps on growing itself once, even after we stop maintaining it. And within 10 years, it starts to look like as if it is a hundred year old forest. Yeah, that's really impressive. And, and seeing the pictures from some of your projects in the past, it's, it's amazing to see the difference between this and a lot of other reforestation projects that I've researched in, in this series on reforestation. Now, let's start from the beginning because I, I really want our listeners to get an idea of this process and how they can start to do it themselves. And so you mentioned first identifying the climax forest species in the area in which you're doing the project. How do you determine yep. which species of tree to plant and what are the different levels of a forest that you account for? Great. So we segregate our species in four different levels, which first is the shrub layer, then subtrees or small trees, then trees, and then canopy. So nature didn't make these segregations. We make it only for sake of easiness. The way we identify a place as climax forest is there is a very peculiar difference between a pioneer forest versus a complex climax forest. A climax forest will always be in different layers and you will see species which are extremely slow growing, but hardwood trees versus a, a, a forest which has just crossed the, the stage where it was a shrub land and now big trees have started appearing. Most of the times these trees are softwood trees like pine and eventually they will be taken over by trees which are uh, strong like, uh, like oak uh, or beech maybe. Uh, so pine and willows are the softwood trees. They don't make the climax forest species. Oak and uh, birch, I think, in Europe uh, are the trees which are eventually going to take over and create a climax forest. So once you are in the forest, eventually you will find a space which has never been disturbed. You know, those core zones of forest where nobody is allowed to plant, nobody is allowed to cut the wood, take anything from them. They are the kind of forests where we should go and conduct these surveys. I know that many of these spaces of, of such forests have vanished altogether from many different places of the world. Uh, so it's not always possible to, grow, to go to a dense natural forest, undisturbed forest. In those cases, we try to bring the traces of history and, and, and try to imagine what the natural forest of that place would have looked like. So in India, we have our oral history. We have a, a lot of written history in, term, in sometimes even mythological, religious text. Uh, sometimes the journals of uh, 
the British officers who would have surveyed India during the colonization period, uh, from poetry, from art, old paintings. Uh, we have uh, we have we have coins with trees on them, and you can trace them back up to five thousand years, and really bring out the uh, natural history of the place just by looking at, at these uh, uh, sculptures, uh, poetry, history, books, literature. So we have to go up to that extent, but the result is so beautiful that we are creating forests of those species which would have existed at that particular place, but for a few generations, humans have not seen them. Like we planted a forest in uh, a place called Rajasthan in India, in Jodhpur, uh, that place 300 years ago was green, green enough that we had a tree hugger movement where 350 people were killed uh, in order to protect the trees which King wanted to get cut to make a new palace. And we were doing a project very close to that site where this massacre happened. And we planted a tree which nobody knew flowers as well. And we planted it in our forest. That's a native tree of that particular place. People have seen hundreds of them over their lifetime living at that particular place. When we planted it in forest, within six months, we saw flowers on this tree. And nobody in that whole village, in that entire area, had ever seen flowers on this particular tree. And that time we realized that how planting an individual tree versus planting a forest changes the behavior of a species altogether. I think it was just waiting for the companions to be planted with it so that it can start blooming. And that happened within just six months of planting. So this is the kind of forest we are able to bring back in all these spaces where nobody would have imagined that you can convert a barren patch of land into forest. And I think that's the beauty of the method. And I feel blessed that we could learn the methodology in an age where uh, we can, we can, uh, we were, you know, still working and uh, we, we had the ability to do it by ourselves. And we're lucky that now others have also uh, joined in as clients, as partners, and it has become a movement much bigger than AFOR as the company itself. Man, I love that story so much. And I really appreciate that uh, in-depth process in which you research really what these ecosystems were like before our intervention and, and meddling in them. And it goes to show that bringing back a forest can do so much more than just serve ecological services. It's, it's connected to our culture. It's connected to our history. And like you said, you see these things in artwork, in coins from thousands of years ago. Like this was very integral to the people who, who made their homes in these places. And by bringing back this type of vegetation, you can actually revive aspects of these cultures that have otherwise been lost. You are right. I mean, in, in fact, all the ancient civilizations of the world evolved from the forest. You will never uh, come across a culture. If you trace them back, you will always see that somewhere they were so close to a forest, even if they are from Middle East or countries which are deserted now, long, long ago, like Jordan, if you go to the old temples, you will see paintings inside these old temples full of trees, full of wildlife. And the time at, these, at which these temples were made, when the culture was thriving in those places before they turned out to be desert, there was a, a, a 
great human activity, civilization. They were building temples. They were celebrating life, making these paintings. Somewhere they would have gone wrong, maybe wrong agricultural practices or uh, migration or just clear cutting the dense natural forest only to realize that it wasn't a good, good, good move to uh, take the civilization ahead. But yes, if we trace back our origins, humans, we evolved in these forests because the essentials for human life, clean air, fresh water, healthy, nutritious food and medicine, they come from natural resources like forests. Even today, in 2020, 60% of our medicines comes from trees. Whatever pathy you, you work with, but you can trace the origin, like the resource of your medicine uh, comes from the natural world. We are dependent on our natural resources for fresh water or clean air. Now, forest provides you all these for free. And... Before we invented logistics, it was essential for humans to be in close proximity of forest or even maybe inside the forest uh, for our very own survival. And, you know, we as a species have evolved for so long in forests and we are, our genes don't change that very fast. Uh, so we might have changed our habitat. We have started living in cities, but genetically we are still not evolved completely to live in the the kind of habitat we live right now so whenever we make these forests inside the cities we see that it transforms people who are in close proximity to these forests or are able to visit these forests they get mentally and physically healed by just being in proximity of these forests and one of such projects we called it the forest of well-being where we planted it inside a residential area and it was so much beyond uh, just the air food water uh, it provides you it was more about how to how to gain peace how to uh, to to get grounded even while you are in the in in, in the concrete jungle of a busy city mm. uh, around you I mean, that's definitely been my experience. I've lived in many different environments around the world in my travels, some very large cities and some really rural areas. And I know the difference of how I feel when I'm in and around forests and how much of an effect that it has on my psychological and physical well-being. And I can only imagine, especially in uh, really dense cities and places that are quite polluted, that that transformation has even a more pronounced effect for people who've lived like that for so long. Mm -hmm. So let's get back to some of the how-to of this. Now, we've talked a little bit about the extensive research that you do to identify the climax forest species. What percentage of the trees and shrubs sort of make up each layer? Because in these climax forests with the canopy up at the top, there's only a certain amount of or certain types of species that do well in the shaded areas below. And I know you're not planting out uh, all canopy species. Yep. So you know the globe is like ecology is so different at every every different place that this combination keeps changing so in an arid place there would be more shrubs like even more than 60-70% would be shrubs or grasses and there would be just one or two species of trees making the canopy of the entire vegetation so when we are doing our research when we are doing our forest surveys we realize that the density is extremely high 
when it's close to the coast and when it's in a desert. So in a desert, the only way a tree can or, or vegetation can conserve its moisture from stop how to prevent it to be to, to get evaporated in uh, because of sunlight is to huddle close to each other and grow in absolute uh, high density so that there is no scope for sunlight to reach the ground and steal their moisture. So they grow very close to each other, but the moisture in the soil is not enough that it can sustain a big tree. So what these plants do, they turn themselves into shrubs. So if one particular species grows as a big tree somewhere else, it may become a shrub inside a forest, in, uh, in, inside a desert, in a ah. deserted area. So what shrub of an arid land may be tree of a moist, moist land. So we cannot categorize like one size fits all for all the places. But to give you a generic idea, in deserted places, up to 70% could be shrubs and just 10, 10%, 5 to 10% of these tree species and rest could be uh, some mid-sized trees. In extremely, like we did a project in Ladakh in India, which is a high altitude cold desert. We just planted one tree species and rest everything was grasses and shrubs together. Instead of a forest, we call it a wooded grassland. So though we specialize in making forests, but we also have to realize the fact that we are in process of bringing back the vegetation which would have existed on that particular place. Now, if naturally that particular place was a wooded grassland, we have no right to try to grow to a forest there because even if we are successful in doing that, we'll be going against the nature and we always want to work with the nature rather than against it. So we have to consider what is the land type? What is the combination that exists in the natural forest of that particular place? And respect that combination and respecting that mimic kind of the same percentages when we are planting our forest. So in India, I have seen variation of from 10% to 90% when it comes to shrubs. For canopy, I have seen variation of like 15% to one percent so depending on place to place it keeps uh, changing but the thing which remains intact is that we plant at a density of three to five saplings per square meter we plant high density close to the coast and in desert both of these places you need high density coast because it's windy most of the time so trees need to huddle together to uh, take care of each other so that you know they fall always on each other rather than falling on the ground and at, in desert as well because they need to protect themselves from sun stealing away their moisture they have to be close to each other mm. in inland areas in uh, non-mountainous altitude we can plant density of uh, three saplings per square meter as well and these numbers are derived from hundreds of surveys done by dr miyawaki and ourselves uh, in different parts of the world and we have realized that a forest always grow between this density three to five trees per square meter so with this system uh it applies to to many different climates that you've worked in but 
One of the problems that I've seen some of my own clients come up with when they go to start to try and reforest an area of degraded land is that the soil is in such poor condition that they can't even get the trees to take off or, or to survive in the beginning parts that are crucial for them to be able to survive on their own. So what have you found, especially in degraded areas, how to prepare the soil and add nutrients and, and essential, um, I guess, organic matter that's necessary so that the trees will grow in the initial stages when they're vulnerable? You are right. In degraded lands, we feel when we go that even if we do all the earthwork, even if we choose the right species, even if we mulch it, even if we water it, the trees won't grow because somewhere you develop this intuition just by looking at the soil, you will be able to tell whether it can make a tree grow or not, whether it has life in it or not. And in 2017, we did a project where for the first time we encountered land like this, when, where we realized that it will be impossible for us to grow a forest in this type of land because it was so degraded. It was just like dust, which would blow away in the wind and that kind of dust throughout the depths up to four, up to uh, three to four meters. So we started to research on soil microbiology because we learned that the life in soil comes from soil microbiology. And even though we were not adding it artificially, we were creating that environment where soil microbiology would be would, would come and start to flourish in that type of microenvironment. But in extremely degraded land, you won't even have that initiative, like the, the population would, which would populize that, like uh, the, the, the initial fermentation when you have, you know, uh, what it's called, the culture. You won't even have the right, initial right. culture to, uh, to, to make the soil alive. And in that case, we learned that you can actually make these different types of compost tea where you can ferment, you can collect the soil microbiology from soil of a healthy forest, from the manure of different animals and or, or ripe fruits and germinate them, uh, ferment them into a, a, a concentrate, eventually dilute this concentrate, reintroduce them to your degraded land and you will have soil, at least in that microenvironment which we have created, uh, full of life, which will eventually support the growth of trees. So our executive director, Sunny, he uh, studied soil microbiology. He took a course from an American scientist, Dr. Elaine Ingham, who exhaustively has worked on soil microbiology, devised a lot of methods how to introduce soil microbiology back into the soil in degraded lands. And after learning from her, we started finding Indian alternatives. And we found an Indian alternative uh, by a scientist. His name is Subhash Palekar. So he devised a method called zero budget natural farming as an alternative to organic farming and industrial chemical farming, which everybody is practicing in India nowadays. Uh, so this alternative zero budget natural farming used something similar to compost tea. Uh, the word in Hindi is called Jeev Amrit, which literally translates to elixir for small beings. 
or for living beings. So Jeev Amrit is basically a cocktail of microbes found in cow dung, cow urine, uh, soil of a healthy natural forest. And you brew them into a tea, you filter it, dilute it, and reintroduce it to your soil. And to our surprise, we had never seen anything as effective as, effective as uh, Jeeva Amrit. We planted mm. our first forest in that extremely degraded soil using that Jeeva Amrit. Luckily, we found a supplier in that area who was practicing making of the Jeeva Amrit for a few years. And we also realized that the main focus of making Jeeva Amrit was on the materials you used. So the cow manure which we collected, the cow dung which we used, had to come from a specific type of cow. Now, what was that specific type of cow? The cow which was native to that particular geography. Yeah, makes that sense. Was the, that was the key to make this Jeeva Amrit. And it made a lot of sense when we realized, when we studied the science behind how Jeeva Amrit works. So this is a small example Dr. Palikar shared with us. He said, when you go to a field and if you see cow dung fallen on the ground, if it is dried, I don't know if you have done ever before, but when you move this, when you remove the cow dung, the dried cow dung cake, I would call it, from the ground, you would see some holes under it. And I have done it as a kid. And I remember, yes, there are holes under the cow dung if it has fallen on the, uh, the grazing land, wherever it is, or even in wildlife. In, in the wild, if you see animal poop, you just remove it and, and you see there are holes under it. Right, and yeah, the reason why, too. Yeah, and the reason why these holes are there is because once the dung falls on the ground, the earthworms living under the soil right. gets attracted towards it and they start moving towards the higher soil so that they can reach the top level. And while doing this, they're digesting the soil from deeper levels and releasing the soil as excreta at the higher levels and if you move in the soil deeper you will realize that you will find that the mineral content is higher in the deeper soils compared to the top soil so when earthworm is moving from the deeper soils to the higher to the upper surface he or the, the earthworm is bringing that deeper soils to the top means he is increasing the minerals in the soil and on the surface, the dung beetles will get attracted towards this dung, make balls of it, and take it to their burrows. So what, is, what they are doing is they are taking the microbes of the cow dung, of the animal poop, and distributing it all over the, the, the area. Yeah. So now you can imagine, you have teamed up with the microbes, you have teamed up with the earthworms, you have teamed up with the beetles, just by introducing a little bit of animal poop to your forest area and this was incredibly eye-opening because we realized that the enzymes which attract these 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 germs these earthworms these uh, beetles are all there in the cow dung then you will need some fungi so that and, and you need nodules which grows on root which can trap nitrogen from the air and give it to the plant so in chemical farming, the main ingredient which exists in urea is nitrogen and plants need nitrogen to grow. But when your soil is so dead because of the use of poisonous pesticides or herbicides or the chemical 
uh, fertilizer itself, soil doesn't have any soil microbiology which can trap nitrogen from the atmosphere and give it to the plant. So we have to artificially give nitrogen to our plants in form of urea. Now, what if we have these microorganisms growing on the roots of the plants which can trap the nitrogen from the atmosphere and give it to the plant? Nitrogen is the, the, the highest uh, percentage in the atmosphere, it's above 70%, more than oxygen, more than carbon dioxide, which plant needs to breathe. So nitrogen is everywhere. We just have to find, you know, these small microorganisms which can trap it and give it to the plant. And where do you find these microorganisms? You find it growing on the roots of healthy trees in a natural forest. So if, when you collect handful of soil from a natural forest, you bring the culture of these microorganisms which can grow in the go on the root of your forest and give the nutrition, uh, give the nitrogen from the atmosphere to our plants. So we collect some soil from the natural forest, which has all the fungi, the mycelium, which can develop a network, all these nodules, which would grow on the root zone of the plants and trap nitrogen from the atmosphere and make this cocktail of uh, concentrated microorganisms from uh, cow dung, cow urine, from soil of a natural forest, give it to our plants and the magic happens. It is unbelievable. I mean, I will send you the pictures of that project. In fact, it's there on our YouTube uh, channel. Uh, it's called Forest Making in Rajasthan. It's just a one minute video where we show you the land and then we show you what happened after one year of plantation. Oh, perfect. Incredible. Yeah, send me the link for that. I'll make sure I put it in the show notes for this episode. Cool. I'll do that. So. This is a fantastic breakthrough for uh, kind of reinvigorating the microbiology and the, the materials for life in the soil, even if it's dead when you start. Now, you've worked on a lot of projects where you don't have to go through all of these steps. The soil is, is adequate but needs some basic amendments. What, is, what has been sort of your, your go-to or your standard amendments for soil before planting your trees in the past? Cool. Three things. One is for nutrition. So we test the soil either in a lab or we have our own kit. We test it for nitrogen and organic carbon. Now in different places, they use different uh, units. Somewhere it's uh, grams per hectare, kilograms per hectare. Somewhere it's a pound per, per square feet, something like that. So what we do is we don't understand all of that. We just say, we just ask our lab to give us comments. We ask them, just tell us whether it is very less, less, medium, normal, or high. Based on that, we have developed a table where we can tell how many kilograms of manure we would need per square meter. If nitrogen is less, maybe, four, maybe 10 kilograms per square meter. If nitrogen is high, maybe just 4 kilograms per square meter. So that's about nutrition. Then we have organic carbon. Organic carbon, if it is less, we may add some biomass, some native local biomass available and just mix into our soil. It could be leaves, it could be shredded grass, it could be twigs, it could be uh, you know, peat uh, collected from under, under, underneath the trees. Basically improving the carbon in the soil because plants would need that in initially unless they start shedding their own leaves, adding carbon back to the soil. Then we add some material which can loosen up the soil naturally. So our test is 
we do a soil texture test like whether it's sand silt clay loam or type of loam type of sand type of clay uh, it's very basic we make a ball of soil and you know make tapes you can find it on internet anywhere how to check the texture of soil and then we have developed a list which a table where uh, you can find out if your your soil is one type let's say if your soil is clay the table will tell you it has low perforation capacity which means when you pour water on the soil the water will not seep in it won't go in so you have to mix some biomass which can loosen up the soil which can open it up which can make it porous enough so that when you pour water on the soil it can go in because plants would need that moisture eventually so we add some biomass which is crunchy in nature like husk of uh, paddy of, of rice now it's very crunchy in nature it has a spring action means when you crush it in your fist it will come back to its original shape uh, so we mix this biomass in the clay soil and suddenly the soil starts to behave differently on and, and this soil can get water seep through mm -hmm. now we have to so this is second type of material perforation third type of material is water retention material because now you that you have loosened up the soil like to give you an example if you have sand sand has no problem with perforation as much water you can pour on the sand it will disappear within a few seconds but sand doesn't have the capacity to hold water and your plants need that moisture which exists in the soil of a healthy natural forest so how to make sure that your sandy soil can still retain some moisture in it make some biomass which is spongy in nature and can absorb water like a sponge now this could be different types of biomasses in india we use coconut peat which is powder of coconut shells separated from fiber whatever remains is a great water absorbent material it could be peat in europe where you scrape peat from a natural forest it's a great water absorbent material it could be bagasse of sugarcane because sugarcane in its natural form has a million capillaries which would hold water in molecular form inside them now you have squeezed the juice out of it but it's not loosened its property to retain that juice so instead of juice now it's water so shredded sugarcane bagasse can be used as water retention material so it's always a mixture of all these three elements manure based on how much nitrogen the soil has perforation material based on what type of soil you have and water retention material based on what type of soil you have and mm. for that we have developed a table which is also available on our open source uh, manual and anybody can use it and determine how many kilos of each type of material they have to add to per square meter of, of their soil fantastic yeah i love the resources that you've put out through the company that other people can access and again i'll make sure to link to those in the show notes as well now when it comes to evaluating a project that you're going to take on for reforestation there's a minimum amount of space that makes sense to do this in right you can't just do it with a few square meters but Tell me some of the differences between smaller size projects, kind of the, the lower threshold, uh, which it's effective, and some of the larger projects that you've had, some of the differences in implementing those types. Mm -hmm. So actually you can, you can even make a forest in few square meters. So Dr. Miyawaki, he comes from Japan, that too from Tokyo. 
and you can imagine Tokyo, Tokyo being Tokyo, there are there is no land available for making a forest in Tokyo anymore. It's uh, Dr. Miyake call it a concrete desert. Uh, so this type of landscape, even in that type of landscape, they have made forests five square meters, uh, ten square meters, twenty square meters. They have made it in parking lots, uh, on the corners of street, on dividers of the road. So actually, it's technically possible to make a forest even in just a few square meters because the way Dr. Miyawaki defines a forest is, he says, forest is a place so dense with vegetation that you can't even walk into it. It's a self-sustaining ecosystem which, where no management is the best management. So you don't have to touch a forest. You know, it thrives on its own, irrespective of its size. So it could be... Uh, small corner between like between street and a building or it could be a forest spread over hectares and hectares of area however we as a company because we have to break even in every single project we plan forests of 100 square meters minimum it also gives us an opportunity to plant a few types of species because in a hundred square meters patch, we would plant around 300 trees, which will give us an opportunity to plant around 20 to 30 species. However, in Netherlands, one of our clients, IVN, they started a, a campaign called Towny Forest. In Dutch, Towny, T-U-I-N-Y, means extremely small, but it also means forest of a town. So it was a like a wordplay, towny forest. And nice. what they did was they started giving away kits of six square meters each. So if you buy a kit for 189 euros, you will get all the materials needed to make a forest. You will get all the saplings, all the plants, and maybe even the tools. So they can make a forest. I mean, they are selling and making these forests in just six square meter space of around 20 trees and it was a big success, a big hit. The way they did it was they ran an online campaign. They said, we have 200 kits to sell. You have to book it now and we are going to ship it on one single day during the planting season. So on one single day, they planted, they, they shipped all the kits together and uh, people made forests all over Holland. Uh, many people, they made time lapses. I, you can find one time lapse on uh, online as well, maybe on my Facebook page or uh, I will send you the link. And uh, in six square meters, they commercially, professionally facilitated making of this for these forests. So they sold it as a product rather than a service and successfully made these extremely small towny forests all over Holland. Probably they're gonna do it again this year during November. Nice, this is a wonderful program. I'd love to oh, yes. see how that kind of continues to grow and uh where that uh, uh, that might be applied in other places around the world you know yeah so does a forest system work for agroforestry and production or economic goals like food and timber harvesting as well or is it just for re-establishing native forests so it complements agroforestry and other farming practices because it brings back the life in soil which is also essential for farming. So soils are so degraded that just monocropping agriculture cannot uh, bring it back. Even if it is organic natural agriculture, 
you need to have a mix of all types of trees, all types of vegetation, which would attract the kind of biodiversity you need to have a healthy, fertile soil. So what we would suggest or advise is, irrespective of whatever farming practice you have, you make a forest on the periphery of your farm, irrespective of thinking about what is the ROI. I'll give you one example. One of our clients, he had a, a do you know custard apple, the fruit? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he had a custard apple and a pomegranate farm. And they were producing, you know, these fruits, but not great quality. And because of that, they were, you know, they were just probably breaking even, but he wasn't very happy with the farm at all. And when he got to know about our work, he said, okay, I will make a forest on the periphery of this farm. Maybe I will plant some fruit trees. I'll harvest the fruits and sell it. Uh, maybe I'll keep bees so that they can, you know, be in the forest throughout the day and I can sell it as forest honey. Both were great ideas. But after planting the forest and after letting it grow for an year, what he realized was that the prime reason why his pomegranates were not of good quality was because the shell of the pomegranate used to get hit by the wind and wind had dust particles in it, which would kind of sand the outer shell of oh. the pomegranate, giving it a bad texture, not the shiny texture, which would get sold for higher cost, higher price. So his fruit quality was being degraded purely because of appearance, which is not the case anymore because the forest is, is filtering out the wind blowing in the farm. So that improved the, the output financially, though, you know, uh, he didn't replace any of the fruit trees. Second was, now that the soil has better soil microbiology, the fruit started tasting much sweeter, much better. And this was he ne never, you know, would have imagined before planting the forest. Right. And the size of the fruit has also increased. It has become a little bigger than what it was before. So when you combine this type of afforestation with whatever you are doing, whatever farming practices you have, you definitely reap much higher benefits than you would have imagined. I mean, the cost of these farm produce can even double. Uh, and also now that you can get an organic certification much easily, you can suddenly, you know, fit yourself, your produce into the organic shelf rather than a, a, a mass production, like the everyday shelf, which doesn't anyways uh, sell for, for uh, anything beyond break break even cost so i see a lot of indirect benefit of planting a forest however i don't always i don't i never suggest to look at these native natural forests as a resource because looking at them as a resource is the is is the the reason why our forests our natural forests are in this bad shape today yeah yeah for sure yeah 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 no, that's a really good way of putting it. And I, I've definitely have seen that in some of the projects that I've worked on, on my, um, in my time with clients as well, is that, you know, you start to rehabilitate an ecosystem towards moving toward like a, a natural system would on its own. And the benefits are always kind of things that you didn't plan for in the beginning. Like you said, the, the, maybe the water retention ability of the soil or the microbiology coming in or wind breaks or shade or pollination. I mean, 
so many of these things are, are services that na healthy natural systems give just as surpluses of all of the life and the abundance that they create. And if you look at them kind of as narrow economic resources, you tend to manipulate them far too much into what you think you want to get out of it and miss all of the other things you could get if it weren't so directed or manipulated. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's like a golden egg laying hen, you know. Mm. So I got to say, like, what have been some of the main difficulties that you faced in getting these forests planted? Um, independent of watering and maintenance and all of those things that come with it, what are some of the costs? Um, have you come into any political difficulties or community dynamics that have made these projects um, difficult to implement? So the biggest difficulty, the challenge which we face even today is lack of native tree species. The problem is that we have forgotten, almost forgotten the native trees and mm -hmm. nobody is supplying them. And they have a valid reason for not supplying them because nobody is buying them. So reviving these nurseries, reviving the culture of collecting seeds of our native trees, germinating their seedlings, putting it into forestry, helping these nursery guys, nursery people, nursery owners to uh, make profits on keeping stock of native trees. Because what was happening was that everybody was planting ornamental trees and paying the top buck for it. But nobody really cared about the native trees. And even if they wanted to plant, they were not as lucrative as money-making as the exotic species. So everybody moved towards exotic and native was like uh, ignored. So the challenge today is how do we create a backbone, a supply chain for all these native trees? Because let's say all of your listeners decide today to plant a native forest in their backyard. They won't have the the supply chain of their native trees. Once they go to a forest, they do a survey, they will make a list of native trees. They won't be able to buy all of them because of uh, no supply available. So that's the biggest challenge. It was there when we made our first forest. It's there, it's still there when we are making our uh, 151st forest. And probably it's gonna hang on for a few more years unless we make this method of afforestation, the most popular method of planting a forest, creating a landscape, doing anything and everything of greening with using of uh, native trees. Even if we are planting one tree, we should be planting a native tree. So that's one of the challenge. Second challenge, challenge was as a company we faced that nobody was getting paid to plant trees. And... Uh, Claiming ourselves to be the professional forest makers and delivering our services, getting paid for it was a challenge. It was a mindset shift which we had to wait for uh, to occur. So we had to compete with the idea that you are planting trees, it's great, but it's government's job. It's job of nonprofit organizations. Why should I pay you if I can get it done for free? So. That was, you know, uh, uh, I think first four to five years, we struggled with that. And luckily, I got an opportunity to speak at TED where I could speak to, uh, where we developed enough credibility that we could place ourselves as professionals who should get paid for their professional services, even if it is a social work like planting trees. And uh, 
third challenge i would say is acceptance of having a forest in your backyard because in india most of the people are worried of snakes they say if i plant a forest in my house if i planted it in my corporate campus there will be snakes we don't want to have we want the forest we love we love being in wild but we don't want the the the, <laughs> the wildlife the, that comes with it <laughs> yeah the alleged dangers yeah, of yeah. wild and uh, now we are in a position so we had to repackage our entire uh, contractual service now it's a huge success we call it forest caping where we integrated art design and forest we con- coined this term forest caping uh, got the domain as well and registered it as a trademark uh, so now what we are doing is we are providing forest caping services where we will bring an artist who would make a sculpture we would make natural walkways uh, benches made up of natural materials a beautifully uh, carved design uh, well uh, articulated selection of species we would make a comfortable book give it to our clients all this before we plant the forest and then we will plant a forest which would be you know a dense forest in 2 to 3 years where they will have a amphitheater a sitting space so we kind of create those experiences where forest will attract people there would be you know uh, people would be sitting in the amphitheater and there would be a show happening with the forest in the background and suddenly we recreate those magical times which in which you know all of us lived 300 years ago mm. where you know meetings were happening inside the forest and nobody was worried about snakes it was everyday life it was so normal so we are just trying to live back those paintings which we see from ancient times where it's people surrounded by forest and those people would be kings saints artists musicians and i like especially in india i would always see forest and different types of trees in the backgrounds of all of these uh, beautiful paintings and arts if i open a Uh, a mythological book from india half of the page would be description of the nature of that particular scene and then they will introduce the characters so this was our taste you know this was the taste of the art of that time uh, where the artistic inspiration would come from plants trees flowers and even today uh, that's the inspiration of most of the artists we like to see the work of art but we are not ready to accept the inspiration the place where it came from and yeah, yeah. once once you reintroduce once you expose people to it suddenly you know it comes back to them all together and that's the high which they never want to get out of so they will protect the forest once you plant them but you have to plant the first one and give it to them so that you know uh, they are exposed to it It's funny how we get that far removed as a culture, you know, a few generations of not living in these environments and they suddenly become something to be feared or to be cautious of and it takes a couple of examples for people to interact with before we start to accept and and revere and add value to these things in the context of how we normally live. It's a, it's a transition that I hope that we can go through as fast as possible so that these environments start to regain the the reverence that they used to have. Um so can you tell me a little bit about what resources people can look to to learn how to plant forests like this wherever they are in the world 
and to help them select the, the right species for their particular environment. I know you have these through your company and your website. How can people find those and, and what are they looking for? Uh, you know, Oliver, we have these uh, materials written in like the, the text documentation. We sometimes offer uh, online training courses. We sometimes conduct these workshops. One of such workshops is coming up uh, this month uh, in India in a national park inside a forest. So we will train how do people do, do, a, do a survey. So we keep sharing all these uh, resources, uh, the knowledge we have, the experience we have, also the documented form on open source. It's there on our website, a double aforest.com. And now, uh, I'm glad that you asked because right now I'm in the process. I've made a Kickstarter. I have still not submitted it. I'm considering should I go for it or not because I have never done a Kickstarter ever in my life before, but this Kickstarter is about, I want to make video manuals of how to make a forest. And I want to do it at four different places in the world where we will show four different types of trees, four different types of climates, four different types of soils and make step by step videos with narration of each and every process will be explained and looking at those videos complemented by the documentation which will be available with those videos the list of materials the list of species one will be able to make a forest all by themselves so i'm i've made the kickstarter i've sent to some people for preview maybe i'll send it to you as well for please do yeah and probably i'll launch it i don't know maybe in a week's time and if your listeners like that they can back it i mean sorry for the ad and plugging in my commercial no no i really think that this is the type of idea that my listeners would really grab onto and support i mean i know i personally would love to see that kind of content come out and i would love to support a campaign that made it happen um so i mean i think that this episode is probably going to come out a little after a week from from when we do this interview so if you've got the links, um, I'll make sure to put that in the intro before I, I publish this. And I'll make sure that uh, people can find that if, if you're able awesome. to make it happen by the time it comes out. 100%. It's, it's all ready. And I'm just waiting to push the button. I'm, I have to make like last few minute changes. But then I'm also giving a thought because I've never done it before. I'm like, uh, should I do it now? Should I do it later? But now sure, that... Sure. <laughs> Yeah, but I'll, I'll, I'll do it. I no, think. I think it's a phenomenal idea. I would love to help you promote that. And um, oh. so one question with it, though, I know you were mentioning one of the biggest uh, difficulties in getting projects like this started is the lack of access to the native species that you need to actually plant. Are you going yeah. to be including in this program how to kind of start a native plant nursery so that people can make their own plants if they don't have access to buying them? Yes, not on all four places. The first one, uh, which is in India, I'm going to record one such in India where we have a nursery and where we have the guy who is expert and he will take us to a forest. He will explain us how to collect the seed, how to germinate different types of seeds. So out of four videos, one will have a manual about how to grow seedlings in a nursery in your backyard. Fantastic. See, this is what I really want to know because I don't have access to land right now. I used to. I made a transition to Spain only about six months ago. And I know that reforestation is going to be part of whatever project I move on to when I find my land. So if I could get the information now to start building a native plant nursery, 
you know, I'd be that many steps ahead as, you know, I'm sure so many people listening would love that kind of information as well. Awesome. So you're going to be my star campaigner for the Kickstarter. I would love to be. I would love to be. Thank you so much, Oliver, for doing Well, so look, um, before I let you go here, th- first of all, thank you for answering all of those questions really in detail. I love speaking, especially to like engineers and uh, university professors always answer questions super well. Like <laughs> they've, they've gone through it and, and, and thought about it in a very linear way that they give very actionable steps and answers. Um, but so with that in mind, uh, what can listeners learn about how to plant and grow forests through this method? when they they receive the in-person trainings that you offer and and how can they find out more about those well in-person training is they're rare you know because it takes so much time and resource and we hardly (laughs) break even during those trainings but i want to keep doing as many as possible of them so what they get to learn is especially the one which we do in february every year which is happening from 21st of uh, this month in india in central india we take the team to a natural forest and conduct a survey with them. So they get to see a natural forest. They get to uh, learn how to do a survey and also collect the seeds from these surveys. And immediately, like within those seven days, they would be surveying a forest, collecting the seeds, going to a nursery, maybe do a little bit of hands-on on how to plant these seeds uh, in, in, in the bags to grow seedlings. Also, how to make those compost tea, the jivamrit I was talking about. Mm-hmm, so they, it's mm-hmm. purely hands-on. You know, they have to touch the cow dung. They have to touch the cow urine. They have to collect the soil. And it's, it's, it, it gets messy and it's something which, you know, you have, you have to break the mold. You know, if you really want to get your hands dirty, if you really want to learn how to make a forest, we want you to touch the soil, eat, breathe, sleep in the soil for at least those seven days. So oh, that's that, fantastic. Yeah, I you know, totally it becomes agree. you become part of the forest altogether, literally. So we that's will wonderful. be making those jivamrit. We'll be, uh, you know, working in the soil, digging the soil, mixing the materials in the soil, planting trees. We'll be literally planting three hundred trees by you know maybe ten participants. So everybody would be planting at least ten to fifteen trees, and then we will have some help. We'll be mulching, like we'll be making a complete forest. And at the same time, you will be able to see the forest which we planted last year with the last batch. So you will also be able to appreciate within a year's time how your forests are going to look. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And within two years time, how it's going to look like because we we have been doing the same workshop at a particular place for the last three years. So you'll be able to see a two-year-old forest, a one-year-old forest, and we'll be planting the third one. So that's, that's so the cool. kind of, yeah. And that's the kind of experience we always want to share. I mean, the host where we are making this forest and the place where we are making this, the host is uh, Belinda Wrights, who is world-renowned wildlife conservationist. She is going to give a few lectures on wildlife conservation, her story. She's going to take people into the Kana National Park on a safari. If we are lucky, we may even see some tigers, but we will see a lot of wildlife. <laughs> we will see a lot of big trees. So it's, it's a kind of, it's more like a retreat than a forest making workshop, but with absolute sharp uh, professional forest making experience. So, I mean, I would do it probably forever for next 
whatever number of years I am uh, active. Man, that sounds like such a fun event. And uh, anybody listening who's planning on going to India and can make it to that. I mean, I know everybody goes there for like their their yoga retreats and ashram experiences, but uh, make it even more productive and go for a forest replanting educational uh, retreat like this and and, and give something back in the process. That sounds amazing. You can come back after... 20 years and see that the trees you planted have grown into a wild forest. Maybe you can see a monkey sitting on the tree. And oh, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, look, Shivendu, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to, uh, to answer questions and share your information here. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. I'll make sure to get all those links uh, that you mentioned and that you'll, you'll be sending me out on the, the show notes for the, for the website. And uh, I really hope that we can catch up again in the future. And thank you so much, Oliver. Great talking to you and talking to you gave me a, lot, a new, fresh confidence to, to go ahead with the Kickstarter. Oh, excellent. Thank this is so really much. the content that we need. All right. Take care. Uh, I look forward to talking to you again sometime soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take Bye. care. There you have it. Shubendu is doing really inspiring work through A-Forest, but the best part about their initiatives is that all of their systems and protocols are available to anyone open source and free. And I'm happy to confirm, like I mentioned in the beginning of this episode, that the Kickstarter campaign is live just of as of just now. You can be among the first people to help get this video learning project off the ground and have early access to the material as well. The best part is that at the moment, I have about 40,000 people who listen to this podcast every month. And that means that if every listener gave just $1, we'd surpass the funding goal. These techniques can be implemented anywhere in the world on even the most degraded and damaged sites. So let's use this unique opportunity to fast track native reforestation and change this cultural norm of having useless and consumptive lawns in, in our yards. So let's use this opportunity to fast track native reforestation and change this cultural norm of having useless and consumptive lawns in our yard and instead have whole communities and neighborhoods of lush, native, healthy, biodiverse forests. I've already made my contribution and I hope you'll help to make this happen too. All right, that wraps things up for this week's episode. If you enjoyed this interview and want to find more like it, as well as articles and other resources, you can find the full library of previous podcasts at AbundantEdge.com. The best part is that you can search by category, topics, or keywords on our brand new website rather than scrolling through more than 140 interviews. I've spoken to experts on everything from growing your own food, building homes from natural materials, beekeeping, vermicompost, permaculture design techniques, and so much more. Before we go, I just want to say thank you so much to those of you who have taken the time to reach out to me via comments and emails. Your input helps a lot in making this show the open conversation and exchange of ideas that it's meant to be, and it helps me to make better content on the topics that you're interested in. If you have any insights, advice, suggestions, or questions, be sure to send them to me at info at AbundantEdge.com, and I'll look forward to being in touch. New episodes come out every Friday like clockwork, so don't forget to subscribe to the show through our website or through your favorite podcast streaming platform. And I'll catch you on next week's show.